This is On Air. Welcome to the On Air Fest podcast. I'm Danielle McConnell. On Air Fest brings together the creative vanguard of thinkers, performers, and storytellers to explore the creative possibilities of sound. And in this episode, David Velasco, editor-in-chief of Art Forum and writer Toby Hazlitt in conversation. Thinking about how Art Forum, a print magazine, could contribute to an audio festival started us digging into some bigger questions. Art Forum presents critique as an intellectual adventure and a unique form of storytelling all its own. As the institution approaches its seventh decade, how can it use today's tools to build new traditions? What is its role in creating the next generation of public intellectuals? And what would such a person sound like? To answer these questions, here's David and Toby, recorded live at On Air Fest at White Hotel in Brooklyn. Hello. This is a funny experiment for us because Art Forum, you know, we're not necessarily a populist magazine. We have a very specific audience, and we're now experimenting with what it means to actually invite other people into that world. Um, Toby is one of uh, my favorite critics working today. Um, He's written for, I should say, uh, The New Yorker, M Plus One, Art Forum, uh, other places? That's it. That's all that matters. So, um, and this month he wrote about an artist, um, a French Moroccan artist named Bouchra Khalili. Um, And I wanted to use that as a starting point because you know, obviously it's fresh, uh, something he's just uh, published. And I also think it gets to questions about what the role is of the critic in society today that could be, um, that could lead us elsewhere. So uh, Toby opens this really incredible piece with this line that will always stick in my head that just says, melancholia is boring. And I think it's, it's a really incredible, it's a really incredible true idea. Um, no matter how violent the anguish or extravagant the sense of loss, I'm sorry to be doing this to you. <laughs> this is horrible. To be melancholy is to be locked in a single, insistent, freezing feeling. The melancholic is obsessive. Obsession stalls the self. And then you go on to kind of tell us how this trap of left-wing melancholia is um, how Bushra deals with this in her own work. Um, and I would be curious, I'm gonna ask you, what drew you to Bushra in the first place and how you think she's doing this work of getting us through melancholia? Hi, uh, first of all, thank you all of you for coming. Um, hmm. I first found out about Bushra's work because there was a show about art from the Arab world at the New Museum called Here and Elsewhere. Here and Elsewhere is also the title of a film that uh, Godar and Goram made in the 70s during their kind of Maoist phase. The Bushra piece that I saw, or the Khalili piece I should say, that I saw in that exhibition was called The Mapping Journey Project. And what it was is basically a series of monitors hanging down in a kind of diagonal formation. I think there are about six. Uh, this piece was later at MoMA, and I think there are maybe eight. Um, 
but it's a very simple approach to art making insofar as there's a single formal element that's repeated over a series of different screens. So in the case of the Mapping Journey project, it's just a single hand reaching into the screen, holding a marker and drawing a line. And that line is a line across various territories. In this case, it's a line reaching from Sub-Saharan Africa up through North Africa, then across the Mediterranean and ultimately what you end up seeing is that these are the narratives of migrants making what is now an infamous journey across the Mediterranean Sea. Um, I think we've all seen the news reports about just how deadly that journey is. What I found fascinating about this piece, which you know ultimately consists of somebody making an aesthetic mark on a map, somebody actually taking the two-dimensional nature of the map with its lines and you know its, its delineated shapes, and just crossing it or just leaving the personal imprint on basically this oppressive geography that ultimately these are stateless people who are driven to transgress national borders for circumstances that they do not control and the one way they have of exerting some power over the world is to leave this line on these other lines. I thought that that was such an extraordinary formal exercise that in its simplicity captured a lot of what was incoherent politically and also compelling morally about our particular historical moment. Um, and from then on, I kind of paid attention to her work and I didn't get a chance to see her recent show in Paris and she has a show opening in Boston um, later this month. But that's kind of how I got interested in the work and I ended up writing about her relationship to politics because I realized that <laughs> her work managed to do the opposite of the thing that I am always doing in my own life. <laughs> I mean, I, I think that I am... Which is? <laughs> I mean, I, I start the piece by saying melancholia is boring as if I am not myself susceptible to it. <laughs> I mean, in, in, in some ways it's a very dishonest piece of writing um, because I, I pretend to be above the thing that I'm actually uh, very inclined to. I mean not to give it away too much, and I suggest you buy the magazine. <laughs> um, but what I end up talking about in the piece is the degree to which you know, the stateless people from what we used to call the third world, who are the protagonists of a lot of Khalili's work, also are people who are descended from or who have themselves survived a, a now mythic era of anti-colonial revolt. Um, and it's kind of the failure and the collapse of the anti-colonial nationalist project. I mean, she ends up talking about France Fanon, who obviously was from Martinique but fought in the Algerian Revolution. She talks about Amilcar Cabral, the Guinean Marxist guerrilla. Um, she talks about Malcolm X, Huey Newton, Angela Davis, all these people who represented a kind of third world solidarity who imagined in the 60s and 70s that they could actually tilt against enormous economic and military power centralized in the industrialized West. And when that didn't happen, the question becomes, what do you do? Now it's 2019 and <laughs> that question has not been answered. And I thought that Bouchra has a funny way of approaching that. I mean, actually, uh, you know, this, this is jumping a little bit more quickly into it than I'd anticipated, but you've just cataloged all of these uh, figures, some of them uh, 
poet intellectual, some of them, or organic intellectual, some of them poet, uh, what is the word for Pasolini that you? Civic poet. Civic poets. Um, and I'm very curious at this juncture, what role a magazine like Art Forum can play, what role an intellectual can play, what role critique can play in, uh, if not shaping, then at least um, um, structuring our resistances to these, um, I don't know, yeah, to these, to these powers. Um, and is that, is, I mean, can I leave you with that? Is that too broad or? Fine. Okay, I'm gonna <laughs> leave you with that. Yeah, well, I, I think that, apologize, I apologize for narrating your work <laughs> in this way, but it's only fair at this point. Um, but the way that I perceive Artform's project or the way that I perceive Artform's place in the world, not just the art world, but the world. Um, and I'm somebody who is, uh, been reading it for a decent chunk of my adult life, which has not been so very long. But what I think is interesting is that there is a whole landscape of intellectual and scholarly institutions that are out there who have undergone kind of radical world-altering changes. I mean, the university, print journalism, the art world itself. Um, but what I find interesting is that there's just something particularly chaotic about contemporary art. There's something, the contradictions are so acute, and in some cases the hypocrisy is so pungent, but also, no, the, the peculiar liberties are so alarming that it actually ends up being a kind of interesting place to have conversations that would not have a home elsewhere. Um, and so what I find interesting about art form, at least my sense of its history, is that in addition to serving a kind of standard purpose as something that assesses new developments in art practice. It also, in my opinion, seems to have been doing kind of double duty as a radical journal. That there are people who make contributions to the journal with the understanding that there is this universe of people who may or may not have a, a vital economic attachment to the art market, but who actually are interested in questions of aesthetics. They're interested in the vague sense of rupture that seems to emanate from the art world, but also that the art world hopes to kind of bottle and process. Um, and I think that for that reason, art form in particular has the opportunity to kind of wade into places that a place like Harper's, of which I'm a subscriber, kind of w wouldn't or couldn't or shouldn't. Um, I think that the, the fact of art forms involvement in the art world allows it just a, a certain, it gives it a certain permission to be jagged and angular and uh, to move in strange directions, which also means that I find that I have a, a greater degree of editorial freedom <laughs> when I write for them and I'm very grateful for that. You said earlier in the green room that you, uh, uh -oh. You were surprised, or that you, you were like, nowhere else could I write, could I just say the name Etienne Balabar and just leave it hanging there without any sort of explanation? And I think, yes, in art form, you can do that. Um, we don't, we require a certain level of, uh, or we, we uh, assume a level of sophistication on the part of our audience, or at least willingness to work for it in Google search that um, maybe other magazines don't. Um, so I, I love what, you, you have to say about the magazine, I, uh, <laughs> obviously. Um, 
and it's true, I do think that one of the strengths of the magazine is it's able to hold in relief these tensions between the market and the, and the market's resistances in its various forms. Um, you know, some people have complained about the, uh, the advertising in the magazine, that there's too much. I would never complain about that. But, you know, it's something that, to me, you know, it's that, that alongside of uh, these genuinely often radical texts is what actually gives vitality and life to the conversation. Like, you have to bring these things into one room to actually uh, have, I don't know, to have, like, a real discussion. Um, so, yes, yeah, so the jaggedness, the chaos, uh, which I feel very strongly all the time, um, is, is, I think, what allows it to do what it does. Um, and, of course, it's very strange to be uh, working at a magazine right now, a leading magazine, I suppose, right now, where in a time when supposedly print media is dead or when, um, you know, we're not supposed to, you know, we're, we're seeing its attenuation. And, of course... I can't see anything but its excitement. Like, I can't see anything but its vitality. Um, and I think that that's, again, part of this... Um, it's just one of the contradictions of our time, that, in fact, um, uh, a magazine like this can, can hold all of these conversations in one place. Um, but so I, I'm still curious. I want to know... What you mentioned the editing process. I want to know, and maybe people would be interested to know a little bit more about what it's like to be edited by Art Forum, how it's different than, say, being edited by The New Yorker, which I would love to know because I don't, I've never, <laughs> I've never had that experience. Is that too general? No, it's actually too specific. Um, but <laughs> yeah, I, I'm happy to answer it. No, I, th I think you kind of summed it up when you. Uh, quoted me without permission what I said backstage. <laughs> but it's true that um, if I were writing for anywhere else and I dropped the name Etienne Balabar to footnote for the audience who maybe doesn't know who Etienne Balabar is, he is an old French communist who sometimes teaches at Columbia and was a student of Louis Althusser and he wrote this book called Politics and the Other Scene that I paraphrase in one clause of my piece. Um, I would say that probably any name you don't recognize in Toby's piece is an old French communist. Yes, that's actually, that's, if you recognize that fact you get a free year-long subscription to Art Forum magazine. Sorry, that's not true. Just to, legally speaking, I want to identify that as a joke. Um, but yeah, I mean, a, a name like Etienne Balabar, or I, 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 I mean, this is going to sound snobbish, but I guess we're kind of um, delineating the more sensuous edges of snobbery over the course of this conversation. But I mean, in, in the first sentence of my second paragraph, I okay. use the word constellations and then say, to invoke Benjamin once more. On one level, that's obviously obnoxious, that I'm assuming that you understand that, oh yes, constellation Benjamin, that's his alternative to the rosary as a vision of agency in a time of crisis. Like, that's not actually fair of me to demand that you know, but if you happen to get it, you get it. If you don't get it, you don't get it. Um, and if you are interested in learning, then you, you potentially have this like, you know, added access to what it is that I'm trying to say. Um, but I guess what I think is interesting about that, and I'm, I'm trying to be self-deprecating as a way to apologize for the elitist language that I have been thrust into. But I, what I think is interesting about that is that it has nevertheless a different attitude towards 
intellectualism than, say, the academy does, in which case, to know Benjamin, to know who Etienne Balabar is, to have an understanding of like what it is Fanon was doing in the wretched of the earth. I mean, these are professional responsibilities and these are a kind of immutable set of preoccupations um, that you may feel as a burden, but I think that just being edited in art form, to circle back to your question, allows me to, I think, be a bit more sinuous with how I think about the way these things inflect my sensibility. Ultimately, I'm trying to write a piece about an artist that I like. Um, and there are many different things that I could draw upon to talk that way. I mean, there are many different ways of describing her work. I do think that her work actually has a few set of, a, a few intellectual commitments that are much more explicit than in other work, but um, in art form, there does seem to be a kind of patience for these belletristic asides um, that miraculously doesn't actually involve any real sacrifice to intellectual rigor. And I appreciate that. Then again, another feature of art forms editing is that it doesn't really seem to have a house style, so that's my experience of it. I actually, I truly cannot speak for other people's um, experience of it, and that I think is I'm a sure good I'll get thing. Some phone calls after this. <laughs> <laughs> Why isn't my experience like that? Why are I not allowed to? I mean, that might happen. <laughs> um, no, I think I think that that's I think that that's true. I think I, I'm also. I'm drawn to the idea that, I mean, this is the first monographic piece you've written for us also, correct? So, I guess so yeah. Yeah, so in, in the past, Toby has written about, for instance, the Whitney Biennial. Um, you were uh, reviewed the sort of infamous uh, 2017 Whitney Biennial, um, and it was a really incredible piece, actually. Um, but you, you're not, I don't think you think of yourself as an art person. I, I don't, yeah. Into the microphone. I don't. Yeah, so, no, you don't. So I'm, I, you know, and one of the things that I, but you're very smart, I think, uh, and a beautiful writer. Thank you, David. And so one of the things that I want Artform to always, I want it to bridge the, the, the art historical expertise, which we um, honor and value all the time, with people who have um, an intelligence and an interest, but maybe don't always have the same uh, bracketed set of knowledges to bring to the table. And I think that uh, I'm curious, yeah, how you even, what was it to come to art form as somebody who's not a quote unquote, well, as, as somebody who's not an art historian, as somebody who has not made art their, uh, their primary mode? What, what, why did you feel like the pages were open to you? And why did you, um, yeah, why do you write about art? In a kind of very basic way, I could pedantically answer your question by saying that actually I kind of got into writing for art forum by writing about film, um, which is not something that I feel like I have unshakable expertise in, but I think I kind of know my way around. I know my way around the things that I like, and actually my first piece is for the magazine, actually I guess it was online, was about Hito Steierl, a filmmaker who shows in the gallery and who writes essays about what it means that filmmakers show in galleries. Um, and I think my first few pieces were actually about film and video. And then I first started working with you uh, when you were editing me for the online film column, and I was writing about film, I was writing about uh, Godard and Gorin. Um, I was writing about, um, 
I forgot the other Adam one. Curtis is hypernormalization. Oh, I definitely read about Adam Curtis. Um, and Arthur Jaffa. Arthur Jaffa. I'm forgetting the other one. Anyway, um, Emil D'Antonio. Uh, if you have any familiarity with these names, you can probably tell that I have a vested interest in nonfiction film. Um, and that's actually what I wrote about for this month's issue as well. And it, by a weird kind of economic accident, it qualifies as contemporary art and not film. Um, but yeah, in a very basic way, the reason that I felt the pages were open to me is because I was writing about something that was important to the art form enterprise, but was not usually classed as contemporary art. In a broader sense, I knew that I wanted to be a writer. I knew that I wanted to write about aesthetics and politics in as, in a way that felt as true as possible to me. And I was also living in New York City and I had, you know, I'm, I'm surrounded by people who like work in art. Um, and I just felt like there was a set of very alive questions that it didn't seem entirely inappropriate for me to try to address. <laughs> I mean, who else is gonna do it? Um, and it started by writing 300 word pieces. So it's not like I unrolled this parchment on the website. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I, I kind of, I guess I was kind of like surrounded by the aroma of the intellectual conversation surrounding just like, no, the art market and like what capital is doing to New York City and the way that that governs the politics of cool. And I mean, what the kind of these like nomadic populations of like post-collegiate youth are doing in New York City and how it's all tied to some vague dream of making it in the hierarchy of taste. I mean, these are questions that I, felt compelled to be reflexive about. Um, and I also kind of wanted to write about. I mean, I think that that's actually interesting uh, that you bring up New York also, that uh, despite the fact that it seems like the city has become so unlivable, uh, there it does continue to attract this. I mean, you're part of a generation. I don't know if you would identify this, but t to me, there's a group of people who I, you know, like a little bit younger than me, who I saw just appear in New York, who were like so, they just, they wanted it so badly and they really had the intelligence to make it exciting. Like the, there's something, you know, what you can only really have, um, you can only have an intellectual or a writerly community if you have a lot of people who actually are in one place believing in it um, and, and competing for it and fighting with each other to develop their own styles, their own, uh, their own tastes. And I, I'm getting a sense that there's a group of people who, who have that. And I, you know, I feel like my job is really just to open up a space for them to have those battles and to define themselves and to give, uh, you know, to, to start articulating what their politics and styles are. So, uh, like, I, I return to, and I, some people have actually said this to me in a way, I don't know if it's a complaint or a, uh, or, you know, something nice that they're saying, but that I've really refocused the magazine in New York in some way. At least my interests tend to gravitate toward uh, New York and also LA where I have, uh, my heart is also, but these places where I have a direct connection and attachment to, um, going out to a restaurant and 
actually having dinner with a group of writers who are all living, you know, and that is, that, that intensity is something that you can only get when you have people in a room together, I think. It's, it's, so you're, you doing this is all just part of that larger project to me. Um, And I'm just, I feel like we're catching you on the way to something else too. Yeah. I mean, while this conversation for On Air Fest is not co-sponsored by N Plus One, I also feel the need to mention that a large part of my understanding of how to be a young person in New York City with, you know, fingers crossed, genuine left politics who also maintain an interest in what used to be called the arts. I mean, how do you maintain a kind of oppositional sensibility when there are temptations to be crass, anti-intellectual, completely cynical, basically at every turn. I mean, you understand that you're participating in an economy of taste whose origins and mechanisms are not appetizing, and yet, uh, because the revolutionary conditions are unripe, <laughs> you, want to, <laughs> you want to have something like an intellectual life that can sustain you in at least one way. Maybe that way is the economic way. Chances are it's not. Um, but... I think that uh, in the same way that Art Forum allows for an unusual breadth of conversation because it stands under the aegis of art, that just art as an ideological sign in our culture is just permission to do all sorts of things, and I think that can be very exciting. I also think that a lot of the people that you're describing, at least in New York, the writers of my generation who came here and wanted it, it's actually unclear what we wanted, and I'm very curious as to what you think the antecedent of it is. Um, I'm, sure, I'm sure we want something. Um, but, uh, but I also think that the growth of kind of alternative institutions like N plus one and Triple Canopy and Light Industry, et cetera, I mean, just as we were talking about in the green room, I, one thing that I found very interesting okay. about another piece in this issue that actually David wrote, um, it's also uh, what's on the cover. He wrote about this photographer, Paul Mpagi Sapuya. Um, and what I found so interesting is that uh, David wrote the text for this series of photographs. It's a, a portfolio constructed from a pre-existing body of work. I mean, it's, it, these photographs were taken in the early 2000s, some of them, or the mid-2000s. And what I found interesting is just seeing these photographs of young, black and white, cool people trying to become artists living in Williamsburg in 2006. And f- for some reason, that to me is like, I, <laughs> it's, it's actually like the sublime to me. I mean, not in a good way. The sublime is an, is, is an ambivalent thing. But I was, I, it was just so interesting to me because I actually do think that we are, and people of my generation especially, are trying to create something aesthetically in the aftermath and in the ongoing collapse of virtually every structure that you can imagine. I mean, climate change is a material reality, but it's also this voluptuous metaphor for everything that I have seen going on over the course of my entire life. I mean, just the absolute insistent degradation of basically every standard and the conversion of all human relations into commodified relations. I mean, it's, 
it actually has been astounding over the course of my, again, not especially long life, just the degree to which the texture of human relations have just been laminated by the commodity form. And it's so interesting to see these Sepuya photographs of people trying to make interesting, queer, you know, gently political art in the middle of Bush's second term. And that to me, no, but, no, but, that, but that, it's an entire cultural moment and we were kind of talking about it. I mean, I recognized the, <laughs> I shouldn't say this, but I, no, rec- please I recognized- say, like, say everything. One of the, I actually am maybe even imagining it, but um, I recognized a particular kind of heather gray American apparel tank top that people used to wear. And I was just like, the history of that tank top, I mean, it's like Benjamin's arcades. Like, actually, it's just (laughs) embedded in that particular garment is an entire set of ideals, aspirations, just complicated attachments. And it's all just encapsulated in this, like, I mean, the fad for sweatshop-free clothing that was, like, unadorned, that a certain kind of possibly gay person wore in (laughs) Brooklyn. I mean, it, it... and so, American apparel. I mean, talk about the failed nation state. I exactly. Mean, um, but I, but I, I, I bring this up only to say that what you are talking about and maybe your attachment to these cities is not just that life in New York and L.A. is so culturally vibrant. It is and it isn't. And I'm willing to be disagreed with on that. I, I, I recognize that I'm, I'm showing you a very particular side of myself. Um, but what I think is interesting is just the way that people feel compelled to think and make things in a situation of heightening incoherence and political and cultural crisis. Like it's, it's had a completely deranging effect and it's not even the kind of exciting derangement that people say the seventies were, but I, <laughs> it's, 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 it's kind of fascinating. Okay. <laughs> no, I, um, wow. Uh, was the 70s the time of exciting derangement, or was it the 60s? That's what people say. Know. I really wouldn't know. Yeah. The, the, you know, I, so there's another writer who I love, um, who I won't name because uh, I'm going to out her in a way that, you know, is maybe not um, appropriate. But she, she wrote, she's trying to write a piece, this is the out, that she has not turned in and has not turned in for months, um, um, about uh, um, Ingrid Sishy. Um, who was the editor of Art Forum from 1980 to 1988. And she's been doing a lot of research on, um, on Ingrid and on this era. And she's, and she's like, she called me the other day um, uh, and she said, I've never, there's no institution or magazine is as self-mythologizing as Art Forum. She's like, it is so amazing how much the magazine is, devo- is devoted to its, uh, you know, uh, honoring and uh, cataloging its um, anarchic past. And, you know, I do have to say, I mean, when you brought up the Paul Sepoya um, portfolio, I do have an instinct towards uh, mythologizing. I don't know if that's a good instinct, but I do, um, it's just what I do. Um, I do it in my own life. Uh, I always assume I'm living in the greatest time. Like, that's just like my instinct, and it's probably totally wrong, but it's, you know, maybe what also lets me do my job. and, you know, I was looking at Paul's photographs, and I knew Paul uh, at the time very well. I mean, I've known him since, you know, we were both babies in Williamsburg in the early 2000s. And, 
you know, and I was, I was thinking, you know, these early photographs have been very underrated, and I think uh, it's time to mythologize them. I'm going to use, actually, the activity of mythologizing in, I think, the most positive way, which is to actually elevate it to a level where it can be, um, other people can latch onto it and project onto it and give it uh, some other meaning. Um, and so I took this kind of, um, I took this moment and I tried to tell its story, you know, and that's, and I think that that's, yeah, that is another thing that the magazine can do. That is um, certainly one of its uh, flaws also is that it can get, you know, uh, uh, hermetic in its own kind of uh, idea of its, what its value is. But, um, but yeah, no, I really, I, I, I'm a firm mythologist, I guess I would say. And uh, Again, this maybe does bring me back a little bit to what you think the role of uh, um, a quote-unquote public intellectual is today. If I mean, I've 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 brought that term up before and said where where are public intellectuals? What can they do? And I'm I'm always met with resistance. People say the pub, the time of the public intellectual is over. That was you know a very specific era in which you could assume a certain number of people subscribed to the New Yorker and read it religiously, and that that was basically its moment. Um, do you think that that category can still exist, or if not, then what has usurped it? What comes next? I guess I, f I think a few different things about this. I mean, the term public intellectual, when we hear it, there is a kind of, there is an immediate, coherent, halcyon image that kind of springs up before us, but it's actually relatively recent coinage. Russell Jacobi made the word up to kind of refer to his own complicated nostalgia for what we think of as the golden age of American liberal thinking, specifically liberal. Um, so the New York intellectuals, people like Edmund Wilson, Mary McCarthy, people who existed in a time when a certain kind of left liberal New York-based magazine could exert a relaxed control over the conversation. When there was something called a mainstream and that mainstream was beamed directly out to this thing that we could uncomplicatedly think of as an American public. Of course, that public was subject to certain structural antagonisms like race, class, and gender, but the very coherence of the idea of the public intellectual was dependent upon denying that fact that there was a body of shared knowledge, there was a shared sensibility, and we were gonna beat the fucking commies. And the, I mean, it, I, I think those two ideas were just inseparable. I, it, it's impossible to imagine the notion of the public intellectual if you don't also take into account that a lot of the people working for the partisan review and commentary also work for this thing called the Cultural Congress for, uh, Cultural Congress for, I mean, basically CIA cultural outfits that were, I mean, directly tied to American diplomatic interests. That said, I do think that the notion of a public or several publics is an interesting failed idea to make these kind of like repeated gestures at. Um, I do think that the alternative, at least the way that history is sorted out, the alternative to uh, the arrogant assertion of a public to which uh, there can be an intellectual uh, that speaks to the public has been the kind of institutionalization of all sorts of knowledge. The fact that now the important thinking gets done not through some invigorating contact in the public sphere, but in think tanks, in 
universities, um, in hyper-specialized magazines, nonprofits, and then what happens to the magazines that used to house the public intellectuals is that it's possible that the demands of the internet, et cetera, I mean, I, I don't feel the need to rehearse this. Um, it might have coarsened or smoothened their relationship to the public, and now it matters really to a lot of big magazines, I would not include art form in this particular category, is the pursuit of clicks. And I, I don't have any real interest in, again, <laughs> like telling you what you already know about what that's done to media. Um, but, and this- At first I thought you, when you said clicks, I, I thought of like Oh no, clicks. not cliques. <laughs> no, no, clicks, I'm talking clicks, about the thing which, you do with a mouse, not the thing you do with yes. your friends. And we are certainly yeah. in the pursuit of cliques. Yeah, so. uh, yes, which are miniature publics. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I guess I, a certain kind of resurgent leftist sentiment in my generation has also, in indirect ways that I don't think it would be right for me to articulate firmly, I think it's also tied to a general longing for some sort of life in common. I, I don't think that everyone who is my age is actually an anarcho-communist who's trying to pool all their resources today. Maybe they want to do that next week. Um, but I, I, I do think that the anxiety about where has the public intellectual gone and what are the conditions for conversation today is inseparable from what it takes to be a writer, what it takes to actually make money by reaching an audience. Again, this is not an answer to your question, but just a way of rephrasing it on terms that I feel more comfortable with. Um, yeah, I, I, I think the people who push back against you and say that the public, era of the public intellectual is over, is, are technically correct, but I do think that it's important in writing at least to always be trying to extend or to transgress the institutional shell that you might be housed in at the moment. In writing or in podcasts. Or in podcasts. I'm, so I'm told that we only have a few minutes left and I think that we'd wanted to open it up to questions if anybody had them. So there's already a hand right there. I wonder if we could okay. go for it. Um, okay, so what do you... Hi, Hi. I'm Kirsten. Hi. <laughs> what do you think the role is of expanded media as it relates to like art world journalism and art criticism? And why do you think some of the most prominent like art world publications have come to that really late? Expanded media meaning like podcasts or like digital story storytelling uh, in that vein? I mean, they've, they, they've come to it, I think, as a survival strategy, you know, to uh, a lot of, I mean, most magazines have been suffering a loss of advertisement for, you know, their printed pages and they're trying to find uh, other ways to, you know, access money and audiences. For, you know, for me, I'm constantly uh, reasserting the importance of the actual, ooh, of the actual uh, magazine itself, the print publication. Um, partly because I think that as a, um, you know, as something that is artist driven and that does actually feature artists' work, it's the best place to see a lot of these images like the you know Paul Sepoya's photographs you can see them online I think that they look significantly better on a page and I will always sort of just you know I would 
you know, I think that people should see them at least there, if not also in the galleries. Um, so, uh, you know, I also think that, you know, we'll, we have a very, very unusual um, base and that we can have a smaller audience um, supported by um, a group of small businesses, really, like a lot of galleries around the world who um, buy into us because they believe in our project, not because, you know, we're like, um, maybe going to, you know, give them broader access to this, you know, like a fashion brand with uh, Vogue or something where, you know, they're going to reach these households that will then buy the perfume or something. Um, so the magazine, I think, there's a good possibility will be the last magazine standing at the end of everything just because there's, it's, it's such unique, um, uh, it's, it's just a, such a unique relationship between the audience and its supporters. And I don't think you see that anywhere else, honestly. Um, so while I'm interested in pushing out, because I just, while I want to explore these other kinds of ventures, podcasting, we have a million followers on Instagram, which is you know, kind of incredible to me. Uh, these are secondary to, the, to what we really do, which is actually getting people like Toby to write these brilliant pieces and then finding a way to uh, um, light them in the pages of the magazine so that they really shine. Um, and that will always be where my heart is. Um, so the other stuff, if that helps me do that, then great. And if it helps other people come to the pages of the magazine to see what we do there, then great. But otherwise, they're not, you know, they're only interesting to me insofar as they can do that. You. So I'm curious about um, some of the dichotomies that you've talked about in regards to Art Forum, right? Like you, you talk about its anarchic past and spirit, um, but also its elite spirit, right? So I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about the readers that you uh, think about writing for and addressing and, and, and what aspects of the art world you really find important to bring your readers. Um, that's a good question. The, uh, I wonder if this, this is probably a little bit of a, well, it's very instinctual to me, I have to say. I, I, I publish writers that I love. I go toward artists that I love that seem meaningful to me. Um, and at the end of the day, that's really like, that's, I, I, want, I want to read what I want to read. So if I'm not interested in reading it, then, that's, then it shouldn't be in the magazine. You know? So I'm the audience I really care about. Um, and then a few people who are probably also in this room who I'm in very close conversation with, but I can't actually imagine, nor would I want to, some uh, abstract audience, I, I can't picture that person. Um, if I did, it would probably be, you know, there was, there's an intern who's working for us now who came to the magazine because, you know, he's from Kentucky and his public school, or his, not his school library, actually had many old art forums and he just found them in the library and he was like a teenager and he really latched onto them. And that to me is like, that's, that is like the most exciting audience. Like that is something. That happened to me in Indiana. <laughs> 
public that's... library. <laughs> so we should really save our public institutions. But you that's have to save your public us. institutions, save the archives. No, I mean, the idea that somebody, that a teenager could stumble on an old issue of the magazine and that can be a lifeline to some conversation to them, that's, okay, that is the audience that I, can, that I would want outside of my most immediate sphere. Is there anybody else? I think we have time for one more. Hi there. Um, I'm really interested in perhaps the difference of um, art writing in the context of art form versus art writing in the context of a larger, more mainstream publication. So what, what freedoms do you have? What risks do you take? And perhaps what themes are more explored in an art setting versus in a, a, yeah, like a newspaper, perhaps. Do it, it's Toby's. As somebody who's written for, what I like to think of as a variety, um, I guess from a certain perspective, they all kind of seem the same, but they are different. Um, I just think that art form, because of its very particular institutional history, I, I hesitate to actually extrapolate about the state of art writing for a magazine like Art Forum because it has annexed a very particular territory. But I think that in terms of doing interesting, kind of complicated things with writing and hoping that they work, I know that there actually is much more tolerance, even indulgence of that kind of attitude towards one's own writing at a place like Art Forum, I shouldn't say that, at Art Forum specifically. Um, and in other places, it's not that I ever feel like I actually have to devote myself to a concrete house style. But what I've noticed is that I think that the previous question about who the audience is would actually be answered with a lot more specificity if they're an editor here at the New York Times and the New Yorker. I mean, places that technically have a larger circulation and therefore should be reaching a much vaguer group of people. But actually that vagueness is like pretty well calibrated and circumscribed. And I just think that, again, this is, I'm, I'm being self-deprecating here, but I, I do think that if I were to bring up Etienne Balabar in a piece about Khalili's work in the New York Times. I've never written about art for the New York Times, so it's just a kind of, I'm postulating that. Um, it's not just that I would have to explain who Etienne Balabar was. I'm sure the editor would just cut the reference to Etienne Balabar because <laughs> you could just describe it. Without, I mean, there, there's no, the audience in that case is not just one that may or may not know who Balabar is, but actually probably would feel distracted or somehow put upon by having to look that up. Um, again, that's a, a very basic uh, kind of nitty gritty difference, but I think that all those tiny decisions actually add up to a difference in style um, and a difference in that you know, ethereal thing, sensibility. Um, I actually am not convinced that one is necessarily better than the other, and I personally feel lucky that I am allowed to write in different ways for different people. I am not a staff writer anywhere, and I feel uh, grateful that I can tap into two different modes in that way. Our time is up, so <laughs> thank you so much to everyone here. Uh, for thank, you. thank you. Thank you to On Air Fest and the producers. That was David Velasco and Toby Hazlitt, recorded live at On Air Fest at White Hotel in Brooklyn. 
If you enjoyed this conversation, visit artforum.com and subscribe to the magazine and learn more about On Airfest at onairfest.com. Thanks so much for listening. This is On Air.